Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. Submit yourselves to the Lord's, for the Lord's sake to every human authority, whether to the emperor as the supreme authority or to governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and to command those who do right. Command those who do right. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish people. Live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. Show proper respect to everyone. Love the family of believers. Fear God. Honor the emperor. 1 Peter chapter 2, 11 through 17. When your parents sent you to school as a child, what was their most basic expectation of you? Certainly, there's all kinds of good things they would hope you would achieve. High academic marks, maybe athletic victories, developing good social skills. But at bare minimum, and in fact beyond all these things, your parents hopefully expected this, that you would show your teachers respect. And I think there are two reasons in particular why they would expect this. The first is that they're trying to raise you to treat people rightly. If you're disrespecting teachers, you're failing to do that. And you're reflecting poorly on their parenting. The second is that the authority of the teacher is just an extension of the parent's authority. Teachers have no authority apart from that which parents give them. They have been delegated authority to teach other people's children. So if you disrespect a teacher, you are in fact disrespecting and dishonoring your parents who have empowered the teacher to instruct you. Now, of course, teachers are not perfect. Neither are parents, for that matter. And yet, God says we are to honor our parents. Because while our parents are not God, God authorized and empowered them to raise children. And so to honor our parents is to honor God. Today's text isn't about parents, teachers, and children. But I think we do have a we do find here a strong parallel with those relationships. Looking first at verses 11 and 12. We kind of refresh our memory and recall that in chapter 1 and also leading into chapter 2, 
Peter has been emphasizing that as we've come to Christ, we have gained a new birth. We are born again. And God has chosen us in Christ to be a holy people. And so, we're to live differently in this world. We're to live soberly and alert. Not getting caught up in the ways of this world. We're to live as newborn babies, desiring spiritual milk so that we might grow up in the salvation that we've gained in Jesus Christ. And so, in in light of this emphasis, Peter just continues forward. And you could imagine, you know, as, as Peter's really trying to hit this home, he could become perhaps a little bit stern, or maybe his audience as they're reading this might be like, oh wow, he's really coming at us here. But I think it's notable, you see how he really takes a very soft tone here in verse 11. He says, dear friends, he's making this loving appeal to these churches in Asia Minor that they should really live into this new life that they've gained in Jesus Christ. He says, dear friends, I urge you. So it's just this urging, this pleading, this, this, this loving desire that, that they would live differently. He wants them, he says, to abstain from sinful desires which war against their souls. And the way in which he says that they are to best abstain from these sinful desires as if they had this mindset. If they see themselves as being foreigners in exiles here in this world. Now we ask, you know, why is it important for us to have that mindset of being foreigners in exiles? Well, I, I think it's important, I mean, because both it's true, if you're, part, if you're joined to Christ. Our citizenship is no longer of this world. It's of the kingdom of God. But it's also practically important as well because I don't know about you, but fighting sin is tough. Fighting sin is really difficult. And it's all the more difficult if you see this place as home. If this world is what you're investing in. If... This life, you know, let's say at best you get to live 80 years on average in America. If that's all that counts, if this is all you got, your priorities are going to be radically different than the person who sees that just as a flicker against the backdrop of eternity, which can be found in Jesus Christ. But so often we get caught up in that. We get caught up in the 80 years. And so we do not live as foreigners and exiles here. We live as, this, this, as if this is all we got. And, we, and so to speak, we've got to really concern ourselves with the landscaping here and you know, doing all these particular odds and ends as if that's going to be what really counts in the end. Peter says if we're going to abstain from sin, we have to think of ourselves as foreigners and exiles here. Now, even in saying that, though, I want to make it clear that we shouldn't imagine that what Peter's calling us to here is to believe that we're just to flitter away 
from God's physical, material creation. As though we were seeking to escape our physical creatureliness in order to exist in some spiritual sphere. And it's important for us to remember what Jesus says in his Sermon on the Mount. He says, Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Now, so often I think we just kind of roll over that. Okay, now we've got the rest of the Beatitudes here. But let's take Jesus' words seriously here. He's telling us that those who are his disciples, those who are among the meek, are going to inherit the earth. That's literal. When Christ returns, he's going to bring new heavens and a new earth, and the people of God will inherit the earth. And so, anticipating that future, we can say that, yes, this is, this is our home, we're going to inherit this, but we, we dwell in it currently now as foreigners and strangers. And I, th- I think to kind of wrap your mind around this, it's good to think about the person of Abraham. God, God called Abraham to go to the promised land, the land of Canaan. And Abraham lived there for a while. And yet, the fullness of the promise that God gave him, gave him was not realized while he was dwelling there. It would have to wait for his children's children to to go off, and children's children's children, to go off to Egypt, be enslaved, and then be called out of Egypt and brought back into the promised land, to the land of Canaan, and finally dwell there. And so while Abraham is dwelling in the land of Canaan, he, he sees himself as a stranger in the land. In Genesis 23, verses 3 through 4, this is when Abraham's wife died. He went to the Hittites and he said, I am a foreigner and stranger among you. Sell me some property for a burial site so I can bury my dead. That's the kind of mindset that, that we need to have. It's the mindset of Abraham is that, yes, we have been promised that we are going to inherit all this, but right now, we dwell as a foreigner and stranger in this world. So we have to have that mindset. If we're going to, to wage against the sins that are coming after us, the sin, these sinful desires, and the nature of these desires is that they're trying to destroy us. They're waging war against our soul. They're waging war against your best interests. And, and that's the thing that's about, it's funny about sin, I think, is that we get enticed into doing it, but all of us know that the sin that we're enticed into never works to our benefit. It always brings us down. It always destroys us. And yet we get drawn into it again and again. And this is why it's a war. And this is why we have to be mindful of that which is to come rather than being fixed on, on what is here. Instead of giving in to our sinful desires, Peter says in verse 12, Live such good lives among the pagans that though they accuse you of doing wrong, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. In many ways here, I think you have kind of the continuation of this idea of us being foreigners and exiles here because 
when you're living in a land, especially when it's kind of a homogenous population where everyone's the same race and stuff, when someone's a foreigner, a foreigner shows up, everyone's watching them, kind of seeing their ways, watching them. They might be a little bit suspicious of them. And that's the case for the Christian. Especially here in the first century, and I think increasingly so today. People are watching us. And what ought to be iconic of the Christian is that he or she is a person who lives a good life. Such good lives that it leads people to glorify God despite all their misgivings about you. And this is exactly what the early Christians accomplished in the first few hundred years of the church. They faced a lot of cultural opposition. You had philosophers like this guy Galen of of Pergamum who lived between 129 and 216 A.D. He was... uh, an expert on medicine and philosophy, and not a huge fan of the Christians, but um, he did have some admiration for them. He observed that Christians live like true philosophers. Because something I think we sometimes miss out on is that the Greek philosophers weren't just solely concerned with you know, uh, abstract ideas, but they were interested in how those ideas would affect how one would actually live their lives. And what we see with the Christians is that their lives are transformed as they come to have faith in Jesus Christ. And so what Galen observes is that they actually live according to true philosophy. They live without fear of death, he says. And they abstain from sinful desires. And it's in just this way that the early Christians overcame all kinds of terrible rumors about them. People were saying that They were cannibals, that they were engaging in all kinds of other bad practices, what I won't get into, between men and women, because of the fellowship that they shared together, because of sharing in the Lord's Supper. They had overcome all of that. And the way that they did that is by living such good lives. And, you know, we live in times in which... People say terrible things about Christians. And so, if we ask ourselves, well, what are we to do about that? We should go to the guidance and wisdom of Peter. He says, prove them wrong. Prove them wrong by your life. And this is what Paul tells to Titus in in Titus 2, verses 6 through 8. He says, similarly, similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. And everything set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. We're to live such good lives that people have nothing bad to say about us. Now that, that prompts some self-examination. You know, am I living the kind of life where no one could say something bad about me? We ought to live such lives as that. 
And, and the purpose there is not just to tr prove people wrong. I mean, I don't know about you, but it's, it's sometimes fun to prove people wrong. They talk smack about you, and then you show yourself to be a stand-up person. But that's not, that's not the point. The point is this. Peter says in verse 12, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day that he visits us. Now, this isn't some original teaching from Peter. He's just, he's just echoing what he's heard from Jesus. Remember what Jesus says on the Sermon on, on, on the Mount. Matthew 5, verses 14 through 16. He tells his disciples this. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. That's the purpose that we've been called to in Jesus Christ. Is that we might live such good lives that people would see us. That they'd be able to actually see those good lives being lived out and glorify God. In response. And again, that, you know, in terms of kind of self-reflection, self-examination, that prompts us to ask, are we doing anything that can be observed? I think sometimes Jesus' words here and what Peter is saying here about you know doing good things and people noticing, sometimes we can put on a Kind of false humility. Well, I, you know, I'm not trying to show off here. I'm not doing this for other people to notice, and that's fine. We don't. We're not trying to gain human praise. But let's not get it twisted. God has called us to live lives that can actually be observed by other people, and so we have to ask: Are we doing anything that can be observed by others? Are our lives actually markedly different from our neighbors? This calls, us, this calls for us to do more than only prayer. I'm not going to say just prayer because prayer is important, but more than only prayer, more than only having goodwill towards others, it requires us to actually do things. And so I want you to be thinking about that you know, as a church. What are we doing? And I think we do do some things. We have that basket back there, and we, we help out with the pantry. And, and there's other things that we try to do on occasion, but we have to ask ourselves, are we going the full distance that God is calling us to do here in Situate? The desired outcome is that God would be glorified. The desired outcome is that God would be glorified as people see us living such good lives, and in response, they would see and believe. Now, that's not explicitly clear here, but that's what's being insinuated. That on the day of visitation, they would glorify God. It's this idea that these people, as they've seen these good lives being lived out, they have come to believe as well, and so they join in the chorus as glorifying God. If we are children of the Father, this is how he expects us to act. He expects us to live in such a way that people would say, oh, that must be so-and-so's kids. They act just like him. And mean it in a good way. 
He's calling us to live such good lives that people look foolish for talking smack about us. That even as they roll their eyes, a desire begins to stir with their hearts, within their hearts to belong to Jesus Christ, just like us. This expectation carries over into how Christians should respond to governmental authorities. Peter stakes out his position pretty strongly as he goes into verse 13. He says, Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every human authority. Boom. It's a command, it's an instruction that is quite challenging. Really, Peter? Submit ourselves to every human authority? Notice there, though, he doesn't say for their sakes, but for the Lord's sake. For the Lord's sake, submit yourself to every human authority. Now, part of this is referring back, I think, to this idea of submitting in order that we would show ourselves to be people who live good lives. But I think it's also implying a little bit more as, as we'll see it go along. But the main reason why he says that we are to submit to these human authorities for the Lord's sakes is because these authorities have been appointed for a purpose. And he covers the whole spectrum, whether you're talking about the emperor in their context, or you're talking about governors. And that's something just important to remember about the Roman Empire. Sometimes I think we think of, you know, they had the Roman emperor as though he's directly governing everybody. That's not the case. It was more like the United States in some ways, where you had the emperor and you had governors covering the whole of the empire. So you have all kinds of different levels of authority here. And Peter's saying, Christians, you need to submit to these authorities. Because these authorities have been established to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. Government is given in order to uphold justice. That's what Peter is saying here. Now, of course, like we were talking about parents and teachers, governmental authorities fall short of this ideal. And Peter is well aware of this. Got a couple pictures here. The first, um, this is from the Emperor Nero's garden. It might be a little bit difficult for you to understand what's going on in this picture, so I'll just tell you. See those posts there? Those are Christians tied up on those posts. And Nero tied them up on those posts in order to light them on fire so that his garden could be illuminated as he rode his chariot around. Nero is in power while Peter was writing. The next picture is of of Peter himself being crucified. Now, tradition says that he was crucified upside down. We don't know whether that's exactly how he, he died, but it seems pretty solid to say that he was crucified. And it was Nero who crucified him. This emperor that he says that all the Christians ought to submit to as a human authority. So, Peter is not naive. 
he knows just how bad human governments can be. And when you're talking about the Roman Empire, you're not talking about an American democracy. You're talking about an imperialist, tyrannical kingdom. The same kingdom, the same government that crucified Jesus. He's saying you have to be prepared to, to submit to these human authorities. And Paul is aware of all the same. And he says the same. And he ends up facing the same similar fate to Peter. He's, he's executed by Nero, but he has the privilege of having his head chopped off because he was a Roman citizen. But similar fates. This is what Paul says in Romans 13, just like Peter. He says, Let everyone be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except that which God has established. The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, whoever rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right or for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from fear of the one in authority? Then do what is right, and you will be commended. For the one in authority is God's servant for your good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for rulers do not bear the sword for no reason. They are God's servants, agents of wrath to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. Therefore, it is necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of possible punishment, but also as a matter of conscience. This is also why you pay taxes, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give to everyone what you owe them. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. Let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves others has fulfilled the law. Peter was a lot more succinct and concise than what Paul gives us here, but what Paul gives us here kind of fleshes out, let there be no mistake, we are, we are supposed to submit to governmental authorities. Why? Because every governmental authority is established by God. And so, as I open the sermon with, like a teacher has been delegated authority by parents, the government has been delegated authority by God to enact and uphold justice. And this isn't some innovation on the part of Peter and Paul. Jesus says as much himself in the Gospels. When Jesus is standing before Pilate, and uh, Pilate's really confused why he's not speaking to him, Pilate says, Don't you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? This is in John 19. And Jesus answers him. He says, You would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. See, this is the seed of the understanding that Peter and Paul here have. Jesus knew that Pontius Pilate had been appointed as governor by God, even though he would think, well, I was appointed by, by the emperor, by Caesar. Jesus understood, no, every human authority is only in that position because God has willed it to be so. You also hear Jesus in Matthew 22 when he's challenged as to whether 
the Jews should pay taxes to Caesar because why would you want to pay to some pay taxes to someone who uh, took over your land uh, against your will? Again, not a democracy. Um, but Jesus, Jesus says to them, "Give back to Caesar what is Caesar, and to God what is God's." Basically, pay your taxes. Very difficult teacher, teaching, an unpopular teaching when he said that. Now, in our minds, we say, we say this sounds fine if government is operating as it ought to be. But what happens when governments behave badly? Does that mean that we can overthrow the government? Peter gives no indication of that here. And if you're wondering, well, you know, is he just failing to mention that one exception? Um, all you have to do is look at the first 300 years of the church. The first during the first 300 years of the church, Christians were under an immense persecution because they were seen as a national security threat to the state. Why? Why were they seen as a threat? It was because Christians refused to offer sacrifice to the pagans' gods, to the pagan gods, and to honor the religious cult of the emperor. And so, not only were they suspected of disloyalty, they were also blamed for anything bad that happened in the empire because they believed that because the Christians wouldn't offer these sacrifices, they had angered the gods. So when a big earthquake happened, a bunch of Christians were killed because they were, they were to blame. That's what the Roman populace thought. And when they refused to offer these sacrifices, they were thrown into the arena, trampled, by, trampled and gored by bulls, eaten by wild beasts, crucified, burned at stakes. Now imagine if any of us started experiencing that. If we saw that starting to happen to our Christian brothers and sisters, would we refuse to take up arms like they did? It'd be a challenge, wouldn't it? But who has a clear understanding, us or them? And I think here it's, it's helpful for us. You know, you've heard that saying, WWJD, what would Jesus do? And sometimes that's helpful, but a lot of times it, it can be difficult for us to really wrap our mind around that because Jesus was very unique even as we're called to follow after him. So I think it's good also to ask, what would the apostles do? Because they live out practically what we're all supposed to be doing as Christian believers. And we don't see them taking up arms to overthrow the empire. Again, not easy. Especially not easy if you don't see yourself as foreigners and strangers here, if you feel like this is all you've got. If this is all you've got, then heck yeah, you want to make this as, you want to have the best life you can have here. And so you'll overthrow any government that doesn't go your way. Now I think there's something that's important to remember here though. Who is Peter's audience? Who is Peter's audience? Peter is not writing to governors. Peter is writing to Christian citizens. 
He's writing to Christians who may not even be Roman citizens. They may just be kind of subjugated people within the Roman Empire. And this is a reminder to us that we are more often passengers than pilots in these affairs. We're not at the wheels of government. And so I do think there's a slightly different reading here if you happen to be in a position of governmental authority. I think if you're in that position, then we read Peter's words in a different light. Because if you're in that position, then your job is to punish those who do wrong and to commend those who do right. In essence, your job, if you serve in government, is to uphold justice. And so, if you're serving as a lower governor, say, for instance... Your responsibility is not to be a lackey for the executive power, but to call for justice. And under circumstances where government has become tyrannical, committing extreme injustices, it can be appropriate for those in lower offices to overturn our current governmental regime. I need to stress there, like extreme circumstances. Now, when you get into verses like this, I don't know about you, but you begin thinking about back to the foundings of this nation, you know, the American Revolution. Was that justified? I think it could be justified on these grounds and that it was not an anarchist riot. The local governments of the 13 colonies determined to form a new government to overturn British tyranny and they declared their independence. They formed a new government. It was, it was orderly. On the other hand, though, if you want to see an example of, I think, a revolution, even if it was orderly, that was unjust, I think you just look at the Confederate States of America. That they decided to part ways with the Union in the name of defending slavery. Unjust. Uncalled for. And so you don't get to just do anything you want if it's orderly. So if we transport ourselves back in time to the first century and we played make-believe, sometimes I like to play what if, you know, what if things were different back in history. So imagine that there was this Roman governor within the Roman Empire who decided that he was going to declare independence for his territory. Maybe in particular to protect the Christians so that they could freely practice their religion and not be expected to offer these sacrifices. Let's imagine that happened. Would Peter expect Christians to be loyalists to the Roman Empire? I don't think so. I don't think he would want the Christians to get involved, really, with trying to overthrow the reins of Roman rule. But I think he would be okay with them just remaining as they are within that territory. Their, their responsibility would be just this, to be obedient citizens in the territory that they reside. And this, again, just takes us back to who the main audience here is here. The main audience is Christians who are not in the seat of government. And that's the vast, vast majority of Christians I think I know most people here in this room, I don't think any of us 
are serving in political office. So that's all of us here. So the question is, is how do we submit to a government when it's gone off the rails, when it's gone bad? Well, beyond just being obedient to those laws that are just, it can be appropriate for us to call for reform, to appeal to those who are serving in positions of power, to uphold justice, to have a prophetic voice. And we see Paul make these sorts of appeals for himself when he's undergoing persecution, when he's been unjustly arrested and, and tortured. We see Paul appeal to his right as a Roman citizen. We can do the same. When it comes to submission, what we need to understand is that we are to only submit in all the things that are within the bounds of just governmental authority. And that anything that is unjust, anything that calls us to disobey God's commands, we must disobey. We must disobey any command that enjoins us to violate divine commands. We see Peter and John taking this stand Early on, in Acts 4, verses 16 through 21, they've gone up to the Temple Mount, they've performed miracles, they're preaching, and the religious authorities, who have real authority, it's not just religious opinions, they can actually imprison people and stuff. Um, the Sanhedrin are trying to figure out what to do with them. They want them to stop. And so in Acts 4, they say, what are we going to do with these men, they asked. Everyone living in Jerusalem knows they have performed a notable sign, and we cannot deny it. But to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people, we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name. Stop talking about Jesus, basically. That's what they're saying. And they called them in, them in again and commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to him? You be the judges. As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. After further threats, they let them go. They could not decide how to punish them because all the people were praising God for what had happened. So if the government says stop talking about Jesus, stop preaching the gospel, we are responsible to say no. I'm not going along with that. I will speak the name of Jesus Christ. I will preach the gospel. I'll teach them the truth of Scripture, because I know, you know the, the gospel is such, saying, you know, have salvation in Christ, that's not maybe under direct pressure today, but we know that the teachings of Scripture are under pressure today in our society. We must not be quiet. We must not close our mouths. We must speak the truth. We also must not submit when we're commanded to participate in evil acts. This brings back to mind the Hebrew midwives in Exodus 1, verses 15 through 21. The Hebrew midwives were commanded to kill newborn baby boys because the Hebrew people were growing too strong. And they refused to go along with it. 
In verse 17, it says, The midwives, whoever feared God and did not do what the king of Egypt had told them to do, they let the boys live. And the king of Egypt summoned the midwives and asked them, Why have you done this? Why have you let the boys live? The midwives answered Pharaoh, Hebrew women are not like Egyptian women. They are vigorous and give birth before the midwives arrive. I love that. I love their little snark there. Um, So God was kind to the midwives, and the people increased and became even more numerous. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families of their own. Notice, God blessed them because they feared God rather than man. They feared God rather than fearing Pharaoh, even though, realistically, they could have been executed for defying Pharaoh's orders. The Christian has been called to walk a very difficult line here. Refusing to obey any governmental demands that call us to violate God's commands, while also submitting to their authority in all other areas. And if if you want to just comprehend how difficult this must be, just put yourself in a much more difficult political situation than anything we've experienced here in America. Think about the Christians in North Korea. Think about the Christians in China. Think about the Christians in Iran and in Russia, because evangelical Christians in Russia are, are persecuted. Peter expects Christians to walk the difficult line of submitting even to those governments. We have to understand the church is not the CIA. The church does not exist to overthrow governments. That's what they all think, all these oppressive governments. They think the church is there to overthrow them. We need to show them 1 Peter and Romans because that's not the calling of the church. The calling of the church is to submit in all areas that don't call us to live in defiance of God's commands. You see, the, all those governments, all these governments, these oppressive governments, they think that they own their people. But Peter makes clear here in verse 16 that no man owns us. He says, live as free people. Live as free people. Love that. But he introduces an interesting paradox here. He says, live as free people, but do not use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. Live as God's slaves. So especially if you take the beginning and end of that together, it's quite striking. Live as free people. Live as God's slaves. Well, I mean, to the American mind, that seems impossible. Because how could we possibly live as free people but also be God's slaves? And the reason why this is so difficult for us is because we have a negative understanding of liberty. This definition from the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy is really helpful for understanding kind of two different forms of liberty and freedom. The first is this negative liberty. Negative liberty is the absence of obstacles, barriers, or constraints. One has negative liberty to the extent that actions are available to one in this negative sense. So this idea of liberty is that you can basically do whatever you want. Um, 
It's this idea that I've, I've heard kind of compared to going to a piano and hitting any key that you want to hit. That's negative liberty. Positive liberty is this, is the possibility of acting or the fact of acting in such a way as to take control of one's life and realize one's fundamental purposes. So the positive liberty is, is realizing the fullness of, of possibilities with one's liberty. It's like being able to go to the piano and, and play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. I'm telling you right now, I do not have the freedom and liberty to do that. I do not know how to play the piano. I could go and hit any kind of key I want. I've got that le negative liberty, but I do not have the positive liberty to play Beethoven. When we think about what it means to be a Christian and to live as free people, we need to think of it along the lines of being able to play Beethoven's Moonlight Sonata. In Christ, we have realized a positive liberty, the possibility of acting to realize our fundamental purposes. Remember, that's what Christ has come to do. Not just to relieve us of, of punishment in hell, but so that we might become the people of God, so that we might be holy people and realize our fundamental purpose. Paul explains what it means to be a slave of God in Romans 6, verses 19 through 22. He says, I'm using an example from everyday life because of your human limitations. He's giving us an example because it's tough for us to understand things. Just as you used to offer yourselves as slaves to impurity and to ever-increasing wickedness, so now offer yourselves as slaves to righteousness leading to holiness. When you were slaves to sin, you were free from the control of righteousness. What benefit did you reap at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. Thinking earlier in, in Peter, they wage war against our soul. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the benefit you reap leads to holiness, and the result is eternal life. So when Peter is saying that we live as free people, he's saying that, yes, we are no slaves to any man, and we've been given this ability in Jesus Christ to exercise positive liberty, to live the good lives that Peter is calling us to live here. And when he says that we are to live as God's slaves, that means that our negative liberty is limited. We don't just do whatever we want to do. And the reason why is this. We live within limits because we are not our own. You don't own yourself if you've come to believe in Jesus Christ. In 1 Corinthians 6, verses 19 through 20, Paul says this, Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit, who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. It's true, you do not belong to any man, but you do belong to God. And so when God says, submit to Him, we submit. When He says, submit to human authorities, we submit 
as far as we can until it begins to violate our submission to God. The point that Peter is making here is don't use God as an excuse for defying the law and basically living as a criminal. And, and finally, in verse 17, he summarizes his expectation very simply. He says, Show proper respect to everyone, love the family of believers, fear God, honor the emperor. Show proper respect. Again, here, Peter's not calling us to show disproportionate respect to human authorities, to offer that incense to Caesar. He's saying, no, don't, definitely don't do that. But show proper respect. Because these authorities have been appointed as, as agents of God to uphold justice. And love the family of believers. You'll remember earlier in chapter 1, he was talking about how we ought to share this, this deep and abiding love with one another as brothers and sisters in Christ. And the sum of it all is that we're living these good lives that, that bring people to, to glorify God. That's God's basic expectation of us. If we ask, what is God's most basic expectation of us? It is that we would live good lives. And don't be mistaken. We don't live good lives so that we can become his children. No. We live good lives because in Jesus Christ we have become his children by grace. He is glorified in this as his goodness is reflected in us, his children. This is the means, against all odds, that a world which wants to mock and accuse us will be drawn to Christ. We are truly free people. We are free from sin's power. We obey governmental authorities not because we fear punishment, and certainly not because we idolize politicians. We obey these authorities because we want to honor God. No human government is God. No politician is God. But God has appointed particular human beings to act as his governors. God will hold them to account if they fall short of their calling. You can trust that. But our responsibility is to be as obedient as far as their authority extends. And then no further. We are to show ourselves to be God-fearing people who honor others because we honor God, to whom belongs all authority and power. Let us pray. Dear Father, thank you that in Jesus Christ, your Son, we can now live as foreigners and strangers here, Father. It's so easy for us to get caught up in all the political upheaval that rolls across the pages of history. To get caught up in the news headlines and everything, Father. 
Father, we thank you that our home is not here. That we have an inheritance which awaits us. But thank you, Father, also that you've not freed us from these fears in order that we might live for our own sakes, but so that we might live for your glory. Father, we recognize that we ought to be the best of citizens, that we ought to be the best of neighbors, that we ought to be the people that are promoting the most good for those who live around us. And we pray that you would help us do that, Father. Not so that we would be praised, but so that you would be praised, so that others would come and believe in Jesus Christ. Help us to do that, Father. Father, help us to submit to the human authorities that you've put in place. Father, we know that they're imperfect. We, help, we pray, Father, that you would lead them to uphold justice, to act righteously, to do what you want them to do, Father. But as far as we go, Father, help us to live obedient. Help us to be obedient in all those areas that you've called us to be obedient, Father. Pay taxes. Render to Caesar what is Caesar. Help us, Father, to have the courage, though, to be able to take a stand when we cannot obey because it would violate your commands. And we pray for our brothers and sisters across the world, Father, who are faced with this daily. Give them courage in the Holy Spirit, we pray. Help us, Father, to honor all we are called to honor and help us to love one another as you desire us to love one another. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Hey there, Pastor Tom here. I hope you enjoyed the sermon I offered to Rockland Community Church. Rockland Community Church is located at 212 Rockland Road in North Situate, Rhode Island, right around the bend from Situate Public High School. This upcoming Sunday, we're going to be having Celebration Sunday, where we welcome new members into the church and perform some baptisms. Uh, So no regular sermon, uh, but we invite you to come join us for this celebration.